I think this is a season where we need to really look at the scriptures and really see what can those, what can the scriptures teach us about God? Because that's what we want to know. That's why we're here this weekend. What can we learn about God? And obviously, how we're responding or incorrectly responding. So I'm going to go to 1 Kings chapter, starting in chapter 16. We're going to talk about Elijah. 1 Kings 16, starting in verse 30, I want to paint the picture of Ahab and who this king was that Elijah is going to be encountering. And Ahab, the son of Omri, did evil in the sight of the Lord more than all who were before him. And as if it had been a light thing for him to walk in the sins of Jeroboam, the son of Nebat, he took for his wife Jezebel, the daughter of Ethbaal, the king of the Sidonians, and went and served Baal and worshipped him. He erected an altar for Baal in the house of Baal, which he built in Samaria. And Ahab made an Asherah, which is a fertility pole. Ahab did more to provoke the Lord, the God of Israel, to anger than all the kings of Israel who were before him. Now 1 Kings 17, verse 1 through 4, and I'm reading in the ESV. Now Elijah the Tishbite of Tishbe in Gilead said to Ahab, As the Lord, the God of Israel, lives, before whom I stand, there shall be neither dew nor rain these years except by my word. And the word of the Lord came to him, Depart from here and turn eastward and hide yourself by the brook Cherith which is east of the Jordan. You shall drink from the brook, and I have commanded the ravens to feed you there. After many days, the word of the Lord came to Elijah. We're now in 1 Kings 18, 1 through 4. So he's been now. We're skipping over the part where he goes to stay with his widow for some two or three years. On the third year, the Lord said, Go show yourself to Ahab and I will send rain upon the earth. So Elijah went to show himself to Ahab. Now the famine was severe in Samaria. It had been three years without rain. And Ahab called Obadiah, who was over the household. Now Obadiah feared the Lord greatly. And when Jezebel cut off the prophets of the Lord... Obadiah took a hundred prophets and hid them by fifties in a cave and fed them with bread and water. I just want to pause for a moment because we read these scriptures and say, oh yeah. So Jezebel cut off the prophets and Obadiah saved a few of them. I think we have to try to understand the culture that's going on because to really understand the stir, we have to feel like we were there. Let's say that the government, which is Jezebel, said, I'm going to kill all the pastors in the United States. What would we expect to happen? Would they all gather in one cave because one person was saving them? 
probably people in their congregation would do what? Hide them, save them, help them. What's not happening here? How does Jezebel know where to find the prophets? How, do, how is she killing them all? What are the, what are the people doing? Yeah, you know, I think we got a prophet next door to me. Why did people turn other people in? For fear. Usually there's also some gain involved, right? You, you're paying into a system because those who have lived under communism and my wife's family grew up with communism in Romania. They understand what it's like to have neighbors turn each other in. It's, it's, a, it's a very strange, awkward, I'd say sick society when you can't trust your neighbors. The prophets of God are being wiped out. Well, they have to, she has to have the people's sort of help in doing that. And we can see what Elijah is facing here. It's not just him against Ahab. This is a bigger battle that's going to take place. 1 Kings 18, verse starting in 17. When Ahab saw Elijah, Ahab said to him, Is it you, you troubler of Israel? Very interesting use of this term. That term is used for a man named Achan. When Joshua went into the promised land, they won the battle of Jericho. The second battle was Ai. They lost the battle. The reason they lost the battle was because this man, Achan, had taken something that God had banned. He took some gold and silver and clothing from Jericho that God had said, don't take anything. I want all of it destroyed. When Joshua talked with Achan, because everyone was distraught now, they waited 40 years to go in. They have gone in. They won the first battle. The second battle they lost. Everyone is distraught, including Joshua. And God says, basically, he shows him who does it. And he says, Achan is called the troubler of Israel. He has called, caused all of Israel to fail in battle. That is what Ahab is calling Elijah. I want you to notice there are certain personalities that we are going to deal with in our lives and in our walk that are not logical. You would have expected after three years some minuscule semblance of repentance. Like, okay, we've been wrong. Could you just make it rain? Uh, all right, I've sinned. Nothing. Elijah, you're the troubler of Israel. And I want to actually expand on this. Do you think the king, how did he publicize that with the media. Who was the troubler of Israel? Was it him and Jezebel and all this Baal worship? Whose fault was it? It was Elijah's. So not only does Ahab say this, I believe all the people are believing this. Yeah, it's Elijah's fault. This is all Elijah's fault, it's, which is an interesting twisting. You think, whoa, 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 that's not what God would have intended. He wants everyone to 
to, to understand why there's no rain. Elijah told him why there was not going to be any rain. And look at how it's been twisted. Look at how it's been spun. And he answered, Elijah answers, I have not troubled Israel, but you have and your father's house because you have abandoned the commandments of the Lord and have followed the Baals. Now therefore send and gather all Israel to me at Mount Carmel and the 450 prophets of Baal and the 400 prophets of Asherah who eat at Jezebel's table. These were government jobs. Don't miss that. These are government employees. They eat at Jezebel's table. This is, a, this, this is very, very important to the story. So Ahab sent all the people of Israel and gathered all the prophets together at Mount Carmel. And Elijah came near to all the people and said, How long will you go limping between two different opinions? If the Lord is God, follow him. But if Baal, then follow him. And the people did not answer him a word. Why not? Elijah is public enemy number one. The king is there. This is a public, like, I mean, what do we say, right? These people are used to saying whatever is good for them at the moment. And they can't actually figure out, like, King is here, he's going to be watching 850 prophets or just one guy. He's public enemy number one. We've heard about bad things about him now for three years. It's all his fault. They don't say a thing. And Elijah says to all the people, now this is after the prophets of Baal have cut themselves and danced all day and no God answers. And basically, Elijah has made this competition. Whoever answers by fire, that's going to be the real God. And the people say, okay, well, we will respond to that. We'll go along with that. Because I don't know that anyone's expecting anything to happen. But Elijah said to all the people, come near to me. All the people came near to him. And he repaired the altar of the Lord that had been thrown down. Elijah took 12 stones according to the number of the tribes of the sons of Jacob, to whom the word of the Lord came, saying, Israel shall be your name. He's reminding them who they are. They have totally lost their way. And with the stones, he built an altar in the name of the Lord. And he made a trench about the altar, as great as would contain two sayas of seed, and he put the wood in order, and he cut the bull in pieces and laid it on the wood. And he said, fill four jars with water and pour it on the burnt offering and on the wood. And he said, do it a second time. And he said, do it a third time. And the water ran around the altar and filled the trench with water. And at the time of the offering of the oblation, this is evening, this is um, an evening sacrifice. They had been there all day. This is going to be important to the story because we have to imagine there were no clouds in the sky. We know that from later in the story. So they have been there all day long. 
Elijah said, O Lord, God of Abraham, Isaac, and Israel, let it be known this day that you are God in Israel and that I am your servant, and listen to this, and that I have done these things at your word. You catch that? I didn't, I didn't cause the call the famine on my own. I, I'm doing this because you told me to. Answer me, O Lord, answer me, that this people may know that you, O Lord, are God, and that you have turned their hearts back. Elijah longs for the people to turn back to the Lord. That, that, he just wants a revival to break out. He's so hungry for this. We didn't tell the story, but he's been living upstairs to a widow for three years in Sidon, not the God, not God's country, not God's land. He's, he's been missing his country, his people. He, he wants something to happen very, very badly. Then the fire of the Lord fell and consumed the burnt offering and the wood and the stones and the dust and licked up the water that was in the trench. And when all the people saw it, they fell on their faces and said, The Lord, he is God. The Lord, he is God. And Elijah said to them, Seize the prophets of Baal. Let not one of them escape. And they seized them. And Elijah brought them down to the brook Kishon and slaughtered them there. So we have to remember... We're in this scene. Let's imagine there is an altar right here. And fire has come down and has burned up everything that was there. Now, sometimes my wife and I will be walking and she'll see a shooting star and she'll say, did you see that? And I'll say, oh, I missed it. You couldn't miss this. You couldn't miss this. Because think about it, you could actually hear it. You could feel it. It burned up stones. You could feel that heat. You could smell it. It had burned up everything. There was a smell of burning. All of your senses were engaged. You, you couldn't miss this coming down. Everyone is on their face. Interestingly enough, including King Ahab which I believe is going to be the beginning of the problem that's going to take place here. What does that mean that Ahab has fallen on his face? I believe all the prophets of Baal were probably also on their faces. Why? To stand tall after fire falls from heaven? God has just answered you. He's just said, uh, I'm here and I'm paying attention. You don't want to be standing at that moment. You don't want to be the tall person it's just a symbol to humble yourself. It's time for humility. Everyone's on their face. They, clearly, this was not just like a sporting competition. This was a competition to the death. And so Elijah then dispatches with all of the false prophets, which he believes and which we tend to believe will fix the problem don't we? If we could just kill all the people that don't agree with us, everyone would serve God. Everyone, everything would be fine. 
doesn't, that's not God's plan. It doesn't work that way. Now, I don't, it potentially was God's plan in this particular case, but as far as that bringing revival, not always going to be the case. Now, let's look at Elijah's relationship as it unfolds with the king, who is just, I believe, now I'm going to, I read some things into these stories, and so I invite everyone to take a look at these themselves. You don't have to agree with me, but I'm taking what I believe is the best fit that explains the events that are going to happen in the future. Elijah says to Ahab, go up, eat and drink, for there is the sound of rushing rain. So Ahab went up to eat and drink, and Elijah went up to the top of Mount Carmel. And he bowed himself down on the earth, and he put his face between his knees. And he said to his servant, go up now, look toward the sea. And he went up and looked and said, there's nothing. Remember, it was a cloudless sky. The sun has been shining all day. He said, go again seven times. And at the seventh time, he said, behold, a little cloud like a man's hand is rising from the sea. And he said, go up, say to Ahab, prepare your chariot and go down, lest the rain stop you. And in a little while, the heavens grew black with clouds and wind, and there was a great rain. And Ahab rode and went to Jezreel, and the hand of the Lord was on Elijah, and he gathered up his garment and ran before Ahab to the entrance of Jezreel. Why does Elijah... He shifts into a mode here that I think is going to cause him some problems. He starts to get sort of chummy with Ahab. He tells Ahab to go up and eat and drink. Now, Elijah's been out there all day. Let's just think about this. He's assembled the stones. I'm not sure how well he slept the night before. He's walked the whole way. Ahab's ridden in a chariot. He goes and tells Ahab to eat and drink. I don't think he eats and drinks. He, it's like he develops this strange, I saw you humble yourself, Ahab. We're on the same team now. We're pals. And this bit about running ahead of his chariot, I think we need to question. It said the Lord gave him the strength to do it. Every time the Lord gives us the strength to do something, it doesn't mean that that was what he told us to do. There's no evidence here that God told Elijah to run in front of Ahab's chariot. When I was a kid, I used to think that was kind of a supernatural, you know, he ran super fast, and there he was at the entrance of Jezreel when Ahab arrived in his chariot, just waving to him like, ooh, how did you get here so fast? Are there other episodes in the scripture of people running in front of anyone's chariot? Something we would question we want to ask. Actually, there are at least two. 
One was in front of Absalom's chariot, 2 Samuel 15.1. After this, Absalom got himself a chariot and horses and 50 men to run before him. Same thing to another of David's sons, Adonijah, exalted himself saying, I will be king. And he prepared for himself chariots and horsemen and 50 men to run before him. When you are running before someone's chariot, and I, looking at the situation, I don't think it was just Elijah, I think it was Elijah and his servants, to run in front of someone's chariot, who are you exalting? Person in the chariot. Is this what God was telling Elijah to do? Whenever I question, I always say, well, what was the fruit of it? When you looked, what was the fruit of Elijah running in front of the chariot? Jezreel was 20-some miles from Mount Carmel. So essentially, Elijah ran a marathon in the rain with his garments pulled up. Oh, by the way, in the Middle East, for a man to run, is that a good thing? Is that very dignified? For You see what's happening to Elijah here? You see something? There's something taking place that he thinks has happened with Ahab, that he is now best pals, secret handshake, whatever it is, they are tight. And he has miscalculated that the closer Ahab gets to Jezreel, the closer he gets to Jezebel, the more he's thinking, how am I going to explain what just happened? Who am I going to blame for that? The next time Ahab meets Elijah is some years later, and he says, oh, you found me, oh, my enemy. Ahab's heart never never changed. Elijah, because he had such a sensitive heart, and the reason I'm talking to you about this is because if you're listening to me, you have a sensitive heart. You tend to miscalculate how much it's costing you to serve people with narcissistic personalities, with people who are not changing. They, if there's a problem, guess what? They're blaming you. You're the troubler. They are entitled. They are superficial. They are often incredibly gifted. Charming. Everyone loves them, except those of us who are very close to them. And then, if you upset them, what happens? Ooh, rage, anger. You are afraid. You live in fear. First Kings 19, verses 1 through 13. Ahab told Jezebel all that Elijah had done and how he had killed all the prophets with the sword. I wonder how that Ahab's version went. I was just standing there, minding my own business. And you wouldn't, I mean, they probably, to kill that many people, probably some of Ahab's security detail were involved and they probably had to use some of their swords. I mean, I, 
I'm trying to think how this happened, but the way Ahab would have told the story, Elijah did the whole thing, and then there was the people. And I, 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 was, I was lucky to escape with my life. Then Jezebel sent a messenger to Elijah, saying, So may the gods do to me, and more also, if I do not make your life as the life of one of them by this time tomorrow. Then he was afraid, and he arose and ran for his life and came to Beersheba, which belongs to Judah, and he left his servant there. But he himself went a day's journey into the wilderness and came and sat down under a broom tree. And he asked that he might die, saying, It is enough now, O Lord, take away my life, for I am no better than my father's. Wow, it is hard to read a story which such a high and such a low so quickly within 24 hours, maybe 48 hours. This is a very painful story to read. And so we typically either say, oh, well, Elijah, you know, we, we try to make excuses, but the scriptures are here so we can look at this so we don't make the same mistakes. We are just like him with the same power that he has. In fact, in the New Testament, we're told Elijah did this. We can pray and do the same thing. But I believe we have the same weaknesses. We want something so badly. We are willing to make up things in our minds to somehow convince ourselves that God has told us to do something and to serve someone in a way that God has not commanded us to serve them. I relate to Elijah's heart. I understand why he wanted, especially if you can get the king on your side, good grief. So many of your problems just go away. They evaporate. Just like the 850 prophets died, now that the king is on his side, this is going to be nothing. He's going to take care of Jezebel. You know, he miscalculated that when you make a marriage alliance, you can't just get rid of that wife, which is actually very interesting. And all the kings of Israel, I don't know that any of them actually had a queen, but Ahab. They all had, I don't know, five, six, seven, ten, in Solomon's case, many, many wives. But who's the queen? Uh, we don't know. Ahab had a queen. And it was Jezebel. You can't just send them back to the king of the Sidonians because you made an alliance. So he's thinking how he's going to manage all of this. And the easiest thing for him is just let Jezebel take care of this. So what happened? I believe that physically, Elijah was beyond tired. Just because the Lord had empowered him to run a marathon didn't mean he didn't feel tired afterwards. A man who has not run a marathon, are his muscles going to be sore after he runs a marathon in the rain with sandals? With I don't know if he's carrying his stick. Uh, who knows? This was, right, this is an exercise the man probably has never done. So he does it. He's successful at it. Think of the adrenaline involved. Preparing for this, 
building the thing, standing in the, in the sun, probably not drinking a whole lot, not eating anything, cutting a bull in pieces. Like this is, this is a lot of physical labor. Running 20 miles, he was absolutely exhausted. And he was also expecting that God was going to take care of his problem that night. The revival was coming tomorrow. And he miscalculated what he was expecting God to do, and it led him into making some errors, I believe some physical, tactical errors, and also some spiritual errors. He believed that God was not with him. I believe that Elijah started to become what we call codependent. It's overly caretaking. Oh, go get something to eat, and uh, we'll check on you later. Oh, it's going to rain. Don't want to get in the rain, Ahab. Are you overly caretaking to someone who is just using you, taking what you have, but is actually, God has not instructed you? to overly caretake for that person. And you're doing it because actually you get something out of it. You feel like, oh, I'm the only one that can help. I'm the only one that can soothe them. There are two sides to narcissistic personalities. One is the narcissist, but they almost always have to have this caretaking person who empowers them, who enables them. And because of our faith, we so easily slip into that role of, oh, just let me take care of you. Let me serve you. That makes me feel good. But if God hasn't called you to that, and you're wearing yourself out, you need to ask that question. The problem is it's going to take some courage to say no. Elijah gets to the cave. An angel feeds him. He runs down to the same cave. I believe it's the same cave that Moses was in. Because when it says in Exodus 33 that he hid Moses in the cleft of the rock and passed before him, it seems to me that this was the very similar circumstance because it says that the Lord passed before Elijah. And there came to a cave and he lodged in it. And behold, the word of the Lord came to him and he said to him, what are you doing here, Elijah? Now, when someone asks you that, the tone of voice, very important. But typically when someone asks that question, it's because you're not supposed to be there. It's because you're supposed to be somewhere else. You were not, but you're here, so let's talk about it. Behold, the word of the Lord came to him and he said, what, have you, what are you doing here? He said, I've been very jealous for the Lord of hosts. For the people of Israel have forsaken your covenant thrown down your altars, and killed your prophets with the sword. And I, even I only, am left, and they seek my life to take it away. 
Notice he doesn't say Ahab and Jezebel. He said the people are doing this. It's, this is the people. He is upset because the people are not responding. Yes, Ahab and Jezebel are disappointing, but he's expecting the people to help out. The Lord said, go and stand on the mount before the Lord. And behold, the Lord passed by. And a great and strong wind tore the mountain and broke in pieces the rocks before the Lord. But the Lord was not in the wind. And after the wind, an earthquake. But the Lord was not in the earthquake. And after the earthquake, a a fire. But the Lord was not in the fire. After the fire, the sound of a still, small voice. And when Elijah heard it, he wrapped his face in his cloak and went out and stood at the entrance of the cave. And behold, there came a voice and said to him, What are you doing here, Elijah? So there's so much that we wonder because the Lord gives him then some instructions, asks him the same question, he says the same thing again, gives him some instructions, and sort of the episode ends. He tells him to go anoint Elisha the prophet and a number of other people. But I think that there's something that's happening here in the spirit that many of us are missing. We, we see this as God trying to speak to a man and the man being so wounded that he's just hanging on to this fact that I'm zealous for you and you are not showing up. You're not helping me, God. And I think what God is showing here by what's happening in nature, the rocks splitting, the earthquake, is how upset he is about what is happening. And how do I know that? I'm going to read you a passage. About the ninth hour, Jesus cried out with a loud voice, saying, Eli, Eli, lama sabachthani, that is, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And some of the bystanders hearing it, saying, the man is calling Elijah. And one of them at once ran and took a sponge, filling it with sour wine, and he put it on a reed and gave it to him to drink. But others said, wait, let's see whether Elijah will come and save him. And Jesus cried out again and with a loud voice and yielded up his spirit. And behold, the curtain of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom, and the earth shook and the rocks were split. When the centurion who were, who were with him, keeping watch over Jesus, saw the earthquake and what took place, they were filled with awe and said, truly, this was the Son of God. Why were they filled with awe, which means fear? Oh, this display shows the disapproval of God for what has just happened here. And I believe that God was showing Elijah, he was validating him. He was saying, I get it. I get it. This hurts. It hurts me too. It hurts me to see people worshiping other gods. It hurts me to see how they don't pay attention to you. It hurts me. 
and I'm validating you, Elijah, by my show of disapproval. And I want to pause there. And some of us need to be validated by God for what we have suffered, even if it's because of some of our own choices. Because our hearts are good. And if you're listening to me, I believe your heart is good. You, you, you want to be a godly person. You want to follow God. You want to do what he wants you to do. And you want to reap the rewards of that and the relationship. But things have blocked your way. Things have somehow... It's your choices. It's the choices of other people. It's the narcissists in your life. And I wish, I wish someone had told me there was such a thing as these narcissists and to look at some of the personality issues and so I could spot them a little sooner than I had to run in front of a few chariots before I realized that's just wearing me down. I'm making poor decisions and it's because I'm spending so much energy trying to please this person or living in fear of this person. So I want to spend a moment because I believe one of the reasons that Jesus brings two people to the Mount of Transfiguration, Moses and Elijah, I believe that centuries later, he's telling them, you both know what these people are like. Now, he was probably receiving some encouragement from them, but I believe Jesus was validating Moses and Elijah even after they had died, saying, I get what, you're, what you went through. I understand. I went through it too. And it's going to cost me a whole lot. And I know Elijah and Moses, I know that it has cost you. And so let's just take a few moments now and let's just go before God, who wants to validate you. Jesus came and he suffered tremendous injustices at the hands of narcissists, at the hands of people who didn't care about his suffering. They're mocking him while he's on the cross. Come down. God's deserted you. They, They can't stop trying to hurt him. He forgave. He left justice to his father. But he can validate you with anything that you are going through or have gone through. And so let's just take a moment now and let's get some validation from our Father. All right, well, we can continue. I think this is always good. I I find one of the primary initial forgiveness steps before you try to forgive someone for what they have done to you, is that we all need validation. If you try to forgive someone and you're not validated, that because if you're trying to forgive a narcissist, they're not going to validate you. I can tell you that. In fact, they're going to do the opposite. They're going to do invalidation. It's your fault. What, what? You're so sensitive. What's wrong with you? So we need validation. If you're trying to forgive someone who's very hard to forgive, I recommend you spend extra time getting validation. Once you're validated by God, or if you have a good friend who can help you with that, very important. I want to finish with this on a high note because Elijah finishes on a high note, and I believe that's why Jesus, he's one of his 
best friends, and he wants him on the Mount of Transfiguration. Ahab ends up dying, and some years later, Ahab's son, Ahaziah, takes over, and he's as wicked as Ahab, and basically Elijah says the man is injured and he's going to die. Well, the king doesn't like that. He's going to try to bring Elijah in so he can punish him, question him, whatever. So he goes to try to find Elijah, and the king sent to him a captain of 50 men with his 50. He sends 50 men to go get Elijah. He went up to Elijah, who was sitting on the top of the hill, and said to him, O man of God, the king says, come down. Elijah answered the captain of 50, If I am a man of God, let fire come down from heaven and consume you and your 50. And fire came down from heaven and consumed him and his 50. Another 50 come, he does the same thing. Another 50 come, and the guy begs him, please don't destroy me, and he says, okay, go with him. Why? Because if fire falls from the sky, really nobody's going to mess with you after that. I want you to think very carefully about this. What Elijah received in his spirit from that encounter with God. He's not running anymore. This is what he was supposed to do to Jezebel and her 50 or 100 or however. He just, fire fell from the sky, not hours before. The problem was he got so tired, he missed his opportunity. He wasn't going to miss it again. Because God is saying, Elijah, I'm backing you. What, what, I'm, 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 I'm with you. You miscalculated, but I'm backing you. And he doesn't run here. He says, no, I spoke the word of the Lord. It's up to the Lord to back me up. And the Lord does. And so I'm going to pray over you now that as you act in obedience, you act in courage, and you speak the words of God, and you make hard decisions to serve or to not serve. It's not always love. We say, oh, we have to love our neighbors. We have to love. And, And when your neighbor is a narcissist, and you try to love them, loving them is not doing everything they want you to do. That's actually unloving. That's just enabling. And we need the discernment as people of God to know what's loving and what's enabling to our children, to our parents, to our neighbors, to our colleagues. So Lord, I thank you for everyone who's come here. And we thank you for these incredible examples in Scripture that apply to us today. Oh Lord, we ask for the spirit of Elijah to fall on everyone in this room. The spirit that sees you, the spirit that knows you, the spirit that sees in the spirit and understands your ways and understands that we don't have to be afraid and that we can make mistakes and that all of them are redeemable. I bless them in Jesus' name. Amen.